Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I'm your host, Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. It's good to be back together, Ben, for this week's recording of Exodus chapters 18 through 20. Not a whole lot of chapters, not a whole lot going on. Yeah, when's the last time we only did three chapters? I know, right? (laughs) Not a whole lot going on on the one hand. On the other hand, a lot going on. Mm, Yeah. In terms of quantity, not so much. In terms of quality, it's a big deal, right? We got the Decalogue in this week's recording. Right. Yeah. So then where we were is we got out of Egypt, right? And now we're headed for Sinai and we arrive at Sinai and there's Jethro and his advice, Moses is reunited with his family. And then we get the ascension to different degrees of the people in general, the priests in particular, Moses especially, and the giving of the law, let's say the law. Really, we're talking about the first 10 of over 600 things that the, the people are supposed to do or not do. I'm not sure that they apply to us. Maybe that's something we'll go into. And that's going to be, you know, from now through the end of what we call the Torah or the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch, that we're going to get this pattern of receiving these things to do and not to do these commandments, you know, these prohibitions. And then we'll see that the Israelites will get these commandments. They won't keep them. They'll get commandments. They won't keep them. They'll get commandments. They won't keep them. That's the pattern. Yeah. You know, one of the things that. I thought about as I was reading this, it reminded me of some of the the commentary I was going through was this question about what Sinai is and where it is. So we have this mountain, right, that's referred to as Sinai here. In other parts, it's called Horeb. And in the narrative of the story, this has to be somewhere not too far from Egypt, right? Because The idea is that they're not too far into their journey here. They're going to be four years in the wilderness, but at this point, they're what? A few weeks, right? Something like that. And the traditional location of Mount Sinai is down towards the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula, which geographically doesn't really work for this story at all. I've been there and I climbed the mountain and you know sat on top of it and there's a, a church, a cathedral up there, St. Catherine's, and it was a cool experience and everything. But did you see God? <laughs> in a sense, right? There are lots of people. <laughs> but it, it seems pretty obvious that if there is a historical mountain geographically that existed in this story, it probably isn't that one that we traditionally point at. You know, it's something else. Again, why we get the two different names of it, it's not really clear. The idea of the mountain here, though, isn't that it's a pinpointed geographic spot. What we're talking about here is at least a metaphorical mountain that is this cosmic mountain, this return to Eden, in a sense, 
Also, this foreshadowing of Mount Zion or the Mount of Jerusalem where the temple would be built. And there's some discussion among scholars as to whether this story is a narrative that is created in such a way to foreshadow that temple on the mountain, or whether the idea of the temple on the mountain comes from this. You know, it's kind of back to our discussion we had about the creation and the coming through the Red Sea. You know, which one is alluding to which? And here we have kind of the same thing. You know, which event is alluding to which? Is this mountain alluding to the cosmic mountain in terms of the Garden of Eden that we talked about? Is it alluding to the Temple Mount? Or are they alluding to this? And I, I would say the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in sacred cosmography, as you've pointed out, this is the cosmic mountain. It's the center of the world. And the center of the world is wherever you are. It, you mm-hmm. know, for, for other people, the center of the world is somewhere else, right? Because it's not, as you said, a physical location, a geographic location. This is sacred cosmography. And so this center of the world, this axis mundi, this world axis, is the place where heaven and earth meet. And as you mentioned, the return to the garden, the idea that, as we see in Dante's cosmography and the Divine Comedy, that the Garden of Eden is at the top of Mount Purgatory. And that mountain, by the way, is formed when Satan is cast down from heaven. That creates this crater that on the other side in the southern hemisphere is Mount Purgatory and the Garden of Eden is on top. So there's that. You know, the other thing, Ben, I guess you're talking about your study abroad in, you know, BYU, Arabic, and what do we call it? Not Arabic and Islamic studies, Middle East studies in Arabic, yes. right? You know, I went to, I wish I could say every place in the Bible. It's only because we didn't go to Sinai. My group did not go. My cohort did not go to Sinai. I've been everywhere in the Bible except for Sinai. And so you've probably been everywhere in the Bible, right? No, I haven't been to Jerusalem. Ah, well, see, we had, you know, Dill Parkinson dragged us all over (laughs) everywhere in the Bible. And God bless him. You know, I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't had Dill Parkinson dragging me around. We just thought, you know, I just do not care to see one more pile of rocks. I've seen enough piles of rocks, you know. No, 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 there's one more pile of rocks. You've got to see this, guys. And off we went to the next pile of rock. And as a matter of fact, on our trip to Cairo, in old Cairo, I missed the chance to watch some whirling dervishes because I I was just Um. beat. I was just pushed. I just wanted to sit down and drink a cold Coke. And I could sort of see them across the plaza. And then looking into the mosque, and I could see something was going on, but it wasn't quite the same as being there. Now, I wish I'd done it Dill Parkinson style, gotten my butt in there. <laughs> yeah. So, you, you know, you're expressing an experience that actually happens to these people in these chapters, right, Christopher? You know, you saw this thing sort of happening over there, and now you're looking back and you're like, oh, I wish I had actually been there and had that experience, huh? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I saw it from a distance. I let the other people go. Yeah. Right? You, you go, and they told me about it. Yeah. But I mean, that's not the same thing as actually experiencing yeah, it for yourself, thing. right? That is sort of the meta-narrative that's going on in these chapters here that I see. And you've got Moses who has had these experiences and is having these experiences with God. And he's trying to invite the people into these experiences. But just as he explained back when you first got his calling... He has trouble articulating it. He has trouble persuading people and convincing them of things. And so he has this trouble with the people. And even though they believe that God is with him, they don't seem to believe that they can have the same experience. And even though he seems to be 
trying to offer this to them. And so we kind of have this meta narrative here where I wouldn't say he's trying to create an egalitarian society, but the idea is that there's this egalitarian experience or a shared experience that all could have this experience with God that Moses has had, but the people don't believe it for various reasons, right? They're afraid, their their previous experiences and, and cultural upbringing and so forth. And, and so we see this multiple times throughout this story. Moses coming out of Egypt, there's sort of, it looks like a contradiction where his father-in-law has heard about what God did for his people. And then he sends word that he's going to meet Moses and bring his wife, bring Moses' wife, Zipporah. And then they get together and Moses has to tell them all about what God has done. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. No, this is another example of what we've brought up where we have this documentary hypothesis here. We've got multiple narratives that are being sewn together, so to speak, woven together. And so there are things that can seem a little contradictory or a little bumpy in the narrative down to Jethro's name, right? Like he has a different name in previous chapters. (laughs) At one point, like Moses's family already has come to him in Egypt, but then at this point they're back with Jethro and Jethro brings them after he's out of Egypt. So yeah, there's a little bit disjointed here, but, but what we're seeing is different traditions and different narratives of the story that are being woven together here. And we can see that, hey, this has been preserved for us so that we can see all of that with not having hopefully lost too much. Obviously, it kind of raises the question, you know, how many of the narratives of the stories didn't make it into the final products? Sure. And, you know, we're not talking about different stories here. We're talking about different tellings of the same story. You know, if you think about how something like the Iliad was told before it was written down, you have, for those who haven't read the Iliad, you have that every time, well, not every time, that, that sometimes when Hector is named, for example, he's called the Tamer of Horses. And so there's this general outline of a narrative that's told, but the poet that's telling it is improvising in the details a little bit. And when he needs, for the sake of meter, some more syllables, he says not just Hector, but Hector, Tamer of Horses, mm. and so on, right? Yeah. And so that kind of thing happens. And at some point, it all gets written down, and that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with something that finally got written down. And, well, okay, what we're dealing with is a a redaction of multiple things that got written down, as you pointed out, right? And so then we have this library we call the Bible, and it's not a library just because the books, what we think of as these separate books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc. I don't know if I said those in order. Here's a trick for the listener. If you want to remember the books, it's Gen X, Lev, Num, Do. I can remember that. If I try to remember the whole names, I can't. So I could just sit here and say, Gen, Genesis, anyway. I just have a song I sing. So There you go. So we have not only all these books, but we have within the books, these sometimes even contradictory versions of the same story. Mm-hmm. The point is that whether who's meeting whom, sure. you know, which way is going, they do get together. They get together. And so Moses is reunited with his family and... And Jethro is knowing everything that God did. And now Moses is going to start adjudicating. This reminded me of the prophet Muhammad, who was well known for and sought out for his justice and adjudication, right? He comes from Mecca to Medina, where the Jews actually asked him to come to Medina to arbitrate. So he's this arbitrator. And so Moses is sitting as his customary sitting, arbitrating. The people come to him and he helps them settle their disputes. 
and things are going well. I mean, we don't have any indication in the text that this isn't working, right? No complaints. Right. But then comes Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Yeah, I mean, I guess the indication that it's not working is that, you know, people are waiting a, a long time, but it just depends what you mean by not working, right? You know, well- Do we get that, though? Well, I don't remember yeah, that. What's the what's the purpose here that isn't working? Yeah, so they're coming to him as an oracle, right? Yeah. In the ancient tradition, and so he's going to adjudicate according to what God would have be yeah. the case, right? Yeah. How do, how do we deal with this issue, whatever issues men are having? It's not clear that women could actually bring something before Moses. And they come to him, and, and he's just going to help them solve their problems. But then his father-in-law comes along and says what? Yeah, so I, this statement here is, is interesting to me. I, he says, what you're doing is not good, right? <laughs> and, and he says, you will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. So then he gives him what is very apparently and reasonably good advice, and it's to create a bureaucracy, right, of wise people that can help filter out the, the lesser matters from the, the heavier things, and only you deal with the most difficult or hard cases, and the more time-consuming trivial matters can be dealt with by other people. And this is a creation of a government, right? A, an institutional hierarchy to handle the issues that the people are having. Moses doesn't yeah. seem to have really conceptualized this at all, right? This comes from, from Jethro, which to me is a little odd, right? Moses sensibly lived in the court of Pharaoh, like he's familiar with royal bureaucracy. And Jethro is this Midianite that kind of like lives out in the desert, and yet it's Jethro coming from a tribal background who comes to Moses, who's coming from a royal bureaucratic background, and telling him, hey, institute a bureaucracy. I just think it's so ironic. <laughs> that is. Yeah, that is interesting. And so what we get, you, you said on the one hand, it's a government. On the other hand, it's this institutional hierarchy. I don't think that you meant to distinguish between the two. But either way, I wanted to just come in and say, when you say government, I, I don't think you mean... I don't mean state. Right. You don't mean a state. No, That's no, no. my point. An also. institution to govern. Right. A governing yeah. institution, which is an institutional hierarchy. And so we can really compare it to the priesthood hierarchy in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints sure. today. Yeah. And I think people are going to say that this is going to be a proof text for that, right? Sure. This is how we do things because look, this is how Moses did it. But it's interesting because as you pointed out, this is not what Moses was doing. This is what Jethro came in and said to do. And well, people are going to say, well, but he's the patriarch, and but Moses is the prophet. So I, I'm not coming down on either side here. I just think there's something interesting to kind of look at here, right? To see yeah. the the different ways of looking at it and to think about it. If we can do like our Jewish brothers and sisters, we can sort of wrestle with this text a little bit. But in the end, we can say that there's this hierarchy that's now going to deal with these issues. And the hierarchy that we have today serves a purpose which is to make it easier to carry out the purposes of the church, which are to serve the people, right? Yeah. And so Moses was already serving the people, though. And so if he can serve them better in this way, on the one hand, okay, great. Otherwise, here's the problem I see, the potential problem. If the hierarchy becomes the thing, and we forget that the thing behind the thing really is the point here of doing this in the first place, of even having this hierarchy, is to serve the people, then we can lose the forest for the trees, right? We can lose the plot, right? We can mm -hmm. just 
have our focus on the hierarchy and forget about the purpose of the hierarchy. Yeah, we can be focused on protecting the institution rather than the purpose of the institution. Exactly. I was reminded in this conversation of what in Islamic jurisprudence is called maqasid al-sharia, which is the purpose of the law. Mm. Sharia is the law, maqasid is the intention or purpose. And so this is thought to be God's intent, right? It's discovering what's behind the law. Why would God tell us to do this? And in this case, why would Jethro suggest doing this? Well, it was supposed to be to make it better. He said this was not good and it was going to wear him out and wear out the people and everybody's going to get tired of this. And so as long as that's working, great. Otherwise, we have to step back. We just have to remember what it is we're really up to. Right. Yeah. I would say this advice of Jethro to Moses is some of the wisest advice that you could give in this situation. And so, again, I don't question the wisdom of Jethro's advice. What I think is just along your lines, Christopher, that we stop and consider what direction we're going in when we do this and what can be lost if we're not careful. And what I see is Moses here in the moment sitting with the people and he's having an experience. No one's complaining. He is as God to them, one by one, fulfilling their needs and their petitions, right? And you know, if we want to look at this in a Christological way, this does evoke for me some of the instances in the New Testament where we have Christ portrayed as sitting there and the people coming to him, and there were lots of crowds. And there's this one point, right, where the apostles say, hey, you know, he's tired, or there's too many people, you know, just back off. And Jesus says, no, let them come. And the reference is to the little children, you know, let them come to me. And he sits with them and teaches them. Similar type of scenario in the Book of Mormon when he comes to the people and they come one by one up to him. You know, he calls his 12 apostles, but still the experience is always open to come one by one and experience Christ. And so bringing it back here to Moses, you know, we might be tempted to look at this advice that Jethro gives him as, you know, divinely inspired or divinely appointed, but there's nowhere in the text that says that, even if we do want to take it as wise advice, what we see in the moment with Moses, again, sitting with the people and teaching them in a little bit more of egalitarian way, right? And I'm not touting egalitarianism, I'm just saying that's a description of the experience here where they're coming to him one by one without some sort of bureaucracy or or hierarchy, that this sort of sets the tone for the next chapters, in that the people no longer feel like they can approach Moses or the experience that Moses is having in the same way, and they become more and more distanced from the personal experience that they might have with God that Moses is inviting them into. And so when we get to the mountain, right, the people don't want to go up. They just want Moses to go up and have the experience and tell them about it. And I come back to this chapter 18 here where this hierarchy is created. And I think what might have been lost in this process here of the people where they no longer desire and maybe that's too strong of a way of putting it, but you know, for the sake of presentation, 
I would say they no longer desire this same experience with God, but are rather content with just secondhand knowledge, a description of Moses. Yeah, even if we just say they're no longer accustomed to it. Sure. Yeah, right? that, that's a good way. So to your point, remember, God said that Moses would be to the people like God and that Aaron would be like Moses. Now, Aaron's not in the picture here, right. but there's a sense in which coming before Moses was like going before God. And really, he is an oracle, right? He's going to tell them God's will and whatever matter he's adjudicating. There's a point where Aaron goes with Moses up on the mountain, but yeah, it's not, not as mentioned. Yeah. yeah. So I see him here, as you said, in a Christological way, and I think, you know, Christ is bigger than Jesus. Jesus is certainly the Christ, and yet Christ is bigger than Jesus, and Moses is being the Christ in the same way that Christ is an archetypal king. And the archetypal king is going to provide for his people, and this is something that Moses is doing here, and something that Jesus does, and he's going to protect them, and that's also part of this. And he's going to be generated, which is a separate issue. That's not an issue with Jesus or with Moses in this case. But the protecting and providing is archetypally king-like. And so that's what he's doing. And he is, again, he's supposed to be God's representative. They see him that way, and that's why they're coming to him. But eventually, as we move forward, they feel like they can just go through him instead of when he is saying, okay, now I'm, I'm offering you the opportunity to go beyond me straight to the source have an experience of God. And they say, you know, we're just going to stick with you, Moses. Yeah. And that is what's being offered here. You know, if we're in chapter 19, the Lord comes to the people and he says, now, therefore, if you obey my voice, this is verse five, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So in other words, the Lord is offering to the people as a whole, becoming his priests, you know, serving in his presence. We talked about when we did Adam and Eve, that Adam and Eve were put into the garden to dress and keep it. That is, they're acting as priest and priestess in the garden, serving in the presence of God. And that is what God is inviting the people back into right here. It's about tending sacred space. Yes. Right? That's the priestly activity, is tending to sacred space. And they all have that opportunity, but they don't take it. Right. You know, now that we're at Sinai, I didn't say this earlier, to your point about the mountain we call Sinai, obviously the one that where somebody built St. Catherine's Monastery was the second, third century. It's kind of hard now to say it's anywhere else because there's a monastery yeah. there. It's been there since Well, we call it Sinai century. now because that's what, you know, that's right. we call it, but... You know, historically speaking, yeah. Right, and the Sea of Reeds becomes the Red Sea. Right. But, you know, Sinai has mountains, not just one, Correct. at the center of it. You're, you're talking about this Mount Sinai that you speak of is in the south. There are mountains in the center of it. There's Jabal Musa, which is Arabic for Mount Moses, right? This is one of the possible places. But at any rate, we're here at the bottom of this mountain, which is the same place where earlier Moses went and saw God, right? Where he communed with God. Again, this cosmic mountain, which, by the way, when I talk about sacred cosmography, if we think back to the stories of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it wasn't always clear if the place where they were seeing God, not just them, but even Hagar, uh, Hagar, right? Even she was seeing God. And it's not always clear whether it was the same or a different place. It sounded like it was the same at some times, and at other times it sounded like it wasn't. 
Well, whichever mountain it is that you ascend to meet God, God meets you there and you're at the center of the world. Right. This is the axis mundi. Whatever mountain you go on, it's Mount Sinai. Exactly. Right. And we all have to make that ascent. Yeah. Or whatever place you go to, to be with God, that's the temple, right? Right. And let's not forget that before this ascent that we're about to make or not, with different peoples ascend to different degrees, we made first the descent. We went down to Egypt, Mm -hmm. right? We shouldn't think of that as necessarily south. We went down in elevation, right? So there's always, before the anabasis, before the going up, there's the katabasis, the going down. And you see this over and over and over in ancient stories from ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, Rome, here in the Bible and, and these Hebrew stories. Same idea. Before you go up, you go down. That's part of it. You're going to see it later on. We'll see it in Jonah, right? He goes mm-hmm. down to Tarsus. He goes down to the port, you know, to the, and he goes down into the hold of the ship. And then he goes down into the water, right? Down, down, down before he can then after three days rise again. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same concept that we have with baptism. That's the concept that we had when they're coming through the Red Sea, right? Yeah. So we have here at Mount Sinai, uh, what we're going to see is a tripartite division. As I said, different people are going to ascend to different degrees Moses all the way to the top, the priests part of the way, and the people in general, they sort of stay at the bottom. But before anybody goes up, they have to prepare, they have to be ritually pure. And pre-show, Ben, you and I were talking about how in our temple cult, there is the initiation, right? There's the washings and anointings that are about, we may not think of them that way, but they are about ritual purity. Yes. And that's something that's supposed to happen before the rest of the temple ceremony. And in some sense, whether we are doing vicarious work or whether it's a living ordinance, a temple ordinance that we're doing, we are going through those steps. But sometimes they can be divided, right? Meaning separated in time. Maybe even separate when it's vicarious work, even different people are doing the different parts. And so we're missing some of the experience, yeah, the intended experience of actually going through the ritual cleansing before entering, as it were, into the presence of God. Yeah, the point of the experience is a beginning to end type of thing. And people don't always get to, to go through through that symbolically, but it is there. And you have the symbolic clothing, right? Here they talk about washing their clothes to prepare. And so we have symbolic clothing that we put on clean or symbolically white clothing and going through those washing and anointing, preparing to be into the presence of the Lord. And then the progression of the endowment, obviously there's there's more to it, but one of the main progressions of the endowment is from a telestial to terrestrial to celestial presence of the Lord. And that is, you know, prototyped here within this story. And so there's more to the temple than in just this story of scripture, but this is part of the scriptural narrative that informs our temple worship. And that is this concept of, you know, the lower area where most of the people are then the level up where the elders would go, and then the spot where Moses would go to the presence of the Lord, that being symbolized as telestial, terrestrial, celestial. That gets then brought into when they construct the tabernacle, which is the mobile temple. Remember, the ancient worldview of gods and the people at this time are still coming into this understanding, even though it's spelled out for them, don't make any idols or anything. But they're still thinking we need a living place for God, you know, a house for God 
for him to live in. And so if he's here on the mountain, but we need to take him with us, that means we need to build a temple that he can be in so that we can take him with us and travel. So that's where this idea of the tabernacle, the traveling temple comes from. So you have the outer area, then you have the inner courtyard, and then you have the Holy of Holies. And that's the symbolism within the tabernacle of the telestial, terrestrial, celestial, done exactly in the same way when they actually built the temple in Jerusalem as well. So we have God's mobile home is what we have here in the tabernacle. And you do see, again, who is it that's going to go to the top of the mountain, to the Holy of Holies? Moses. Yeah. One step below are the priests, and then in the outer courtyard or at the bottom of the mountain, the people. Now, one thing, Ben, going back to what I was saying about the temple, you said it's always available, and anyone going to the temple can take the time and go through all the steps, right, and have that experience Mm -hmm. as intended. But the way that we do it when we don't go through the whole, when we do it otherwise, is really about efficiency, right? right? There's some kind of efficiency, which reminds me of Jethro. Exactly. Jethro came up with an efficiency, and there's a reality to that, and there's a benefit to that, and there's no denying that. And yet, what do you miss? Right. You miss all the symbolism. So in some sense, you know, we think in terms of preparing ourselves to go to the temple, we still talk in those terms. I'm preparing myself to go to the temple. Some people fast. Some people, they just want to make a ritual in some sense out of separating themselves from the profane space into the sacred space. And they're not going through those washings and anointings. And so they're doing something in their minds to prepare themselves in that way. Yeah. And that's as it should be, right? As is needful. I would suggest that going through all the steps would be ideal. If not efficient, it's ideal. Yeah. I like the point you bring up there of all the practicalities of the efficiency of it, you know, we can lose something to it. Certainly there can be some mindfulness in that, but still there's something to the physical preparation that happens. And I think it's difficult for anybody to deny that. Everybody's ritualistic in one way or another, and they know that going through certain exercises or or practices to prepare yourself and your mind and your state of mind and your perceptions to have an experience, that's ubiquitous. People experience things in different ways, but everybody does that to a certain extent. And so there can be something lost there when there's not that type of ritualistic exercise in preparation. One of the ways that I thought about it just in terms of what can be lost is that as we're sort of taking something that's chaotic and bringing organization to it, right, in the story of Moses and Jethro, that in the process of moving from chaos to order, there is some beauty of the chaos that gets lost in the order. And and maybe it's needful and practical, but you still mourn that loss, right? (laughs) Yes. I'm glad you brought up chaos and order. Before we move on to the Ten Commandments, Ben, there's one more thing I want to say here, and that is thinking about the temple experience in general. Another thing that we do as Latter-day Saints is we talk about going to the temple to learn about the creation, which is coming out of chaos into order. That's what creation is. Well, what if we're not going to learn? In traditional society, the people went to the temple because, you know, they didn't actually see themselves in a timeline. This idea of being in a timeline doesn't show up until Roman times. So it's not that there's no biological time. Don't get me wrong. Everybody can see that grandpa's getting older and that the new baby was born and is growing up. But the idea is that they didn't see themselves in history. And this is according to the comparative religious scholar, Mircea Eliade. And you can read about this in detail in 
The Myth of the Eternal Return, Cosmos and History, a great book. You know, it's, for me, it's been one of the few books that was truly paradigm shifting for me in this way. So when it comes to going to the temple, they didn't think of it in terms of going to learn about the creation. They were taking themselves, and we talk in this way, right? We talk about leaving the chaos of the, of the world and going into this place of peace. They actually saw themselves because everything that they did that was following an archetype, and maybe I shouldn't say archetype. In, in fact, Eliada said in his preface to his second edition that he didn't mean that in a Jungian way, but that follows a model, whether it would be planting, harvesting, marrying, all the things that you would do that follow a model. Like Jesus says, he doesn't do anything, but he saw the Father do it. These are all sacred activities. Anything that they did that was not following a model was profane. And so they would go to the temple to return to what Eliade calls in ilo tempore, in that time, aborigine, to the beginning, right? In the beginning, back to Genesis, right? In the beginning. They would go to the temple to take themselves out of history. Eliade talks about the terror of history. They would take themselves out of history, put themselves back into a sacred space, and sacred time is what I'm referring to when I say in ilo tempore, aborigine, right? And so they put themselves in sacred space and sacred time, and they recreated the cosmos, right? They're not just learning about the creation of the cosmos. They're actually coming out of chaos back into cosmos. Cosmos means order. And so they're reordering themselves and their lives. And that's what really religion is about. Religio means what binds us. So it binds us between us and God and between us and each other. And so they're sort of retying that knot, right? When heaven and earth meet in that sacred space and time, that's a marriage. And what we see here in Exodus 2 and throughout the rest of the Pentateuch is God is entering into a relationship with us that's a lot like a marriage. He's making a covenant that's like a marriage. God wants to marry us. That's what he's doing. That's an interesting way of putting it, you know, that coming out of the timeline and stepping back into something that we might call an eternal now or atemporal, right? This Eden-like existence, right, where everything is there present before us, which makes sense, you know, that that's why we use that story and that narrative within that space to bring our minds into that idea. Exactly. So I think we can, unless you have anything to add, we can talk about the Ten Commandments. Yeah, now. go for it. Yeah, start off. Well. We're all familiar with the Ten Commandments, I hope. There's, I think there's one commandment that I'd like to make a comment on. And then what I'd like to do is, Ben, there's this book that's called A Most Peculiar Book. I think that's the title. I don't remember the author. And it's one of the books about the Bible that I didn't read among those two dozen books that I read on the Bible in December before, this, you know, <laughs> before starting on this journey together of podcasting on the Old Testament. I wanted to get prepared. And this is a book that I think had come to my attention, but it's just not one that I got to. And it has 10 commandments for reading the Bible. And so I thought I would take the 10 commandments and go through how we might apply them in this way as suggested by the author of a most peculiar book and how to read the Bible. And that might be something different and fun. But before I do that, there is one commandment that I think, at least one that I think I'd like to go into. And that is, I don't remember the wording in the King James Version. But it's, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Is that it? Yes. And so I think a better translation, this is something that I went into because of a sacrament talk where I really went into this. And I think a better translation would be, 
that we should not take upon ourselves the name of God in vain. So while on the one hand, if we hold God sacred, we wouldn't use his name in vain, meaning don't cuss and say God, right? And that would still hold. But I don't think that's what this is about. It's something more than that. It's something deeper than just something you say. Exactly. We're talking about taking upon ourselves the name of God in vain. This is an investiture. And without going into all the details of that, you know, there is sort of a clothing. Well, maybe I am going into the details a little (laughs) bit. In, In rabbinical tradition, there's the idea that as we come down to earth, we're stripped of our heavenly garments. And then that's why we have to be given the clothing, I was going to say, in the temple, in the garden, right? It is like the endowment in the temple, right? The investiture in the temple. So there's this investiture. At any rate, we're taking upon ourselves, in some sense, covenants. We're taking upon ourselves, in our case, as Christians, the name of Christ. So for me, what it means not to take upon ourselves the name of Christ in vain is that if we call ourselves Christians, then we have to remember that when someone looks at us, that's a Christian. And if when they look at us, that doesn't look like a Christian, then we're taking upon ourselves the name of Christ in vain. And so for me, it's at least at times guilty as charged. Right? Sure. I've, I've taken upon myself the name of Christ in vain, because if I'm calling myself a Christian, I should look like a Christian to anyone looking at me from the outside looking in, and I should act like a Christian. And so that's what I think we're, we're dealing with here. And that's something that we have the opportunity every Sunday at the sacrament table to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. And through repenting, if we find that we have failed, as I have, that we can actually be able to repent, meaning to see that in the right way, to see that we must look like Christians, we must act like Christians, not just call ourselves Christians. Yeah, it's a reinvestment, right? You know, it's interesting here in English we have this, but you're reinvesting by reingesting Christ into yourself. And so there's that investiture of that name of Christ. And then symbolically, we take that bread and water that we say are symbolically part of who he is and we make them part of our bodies. Yeah, the only other thing I would make a note on these commandments is. This first one here, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And this just touches on a point that we've brought up a few times. And that's that, especially at this point in the Jewish religion, so to speak, monotheism isn't the thing, right? So typically we like to divide theism into monotheism and polytheism. You either believe there's one God or you believe there's a bunch of gods. And what's going on here isn't really either one of those. It's, I always pronounce it wrong. I want to say monolatry. Monolatry. There we go. Monolatry. Yes. So this is monolatrous. And the idea here is that, yes, there are many gods, but only one of them is worthy of worship. And this is brought out in the whole story of your deliverance from Egypt, right? Yes, there's all kinds of gods in Egypt, and they are actual gods, but none of them are anywhere near as powerful or worthy of worship as the Lord. And so that that's the whole point of that story, to demonstrate that. So the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is an acknowledgement within the theology of the time and of the people that there are other gods, but that only the Lord is the one who is worthy of worship. Yeah, and I think it's worth reminding the listener at this point that when we say the Lord, anytime you see 
as you read in King James Bible, especially, I don't know about other translations, but when you see Lord in what we call small caps, which means it's all capitalized, but the, but the L is an actual capital and the other capitals, are, they are capitals, but they're smaller. And that's mm-hmm. why we call them small caps. So just the L is an actual capital. And then ORD are small caps. Anytime you see that in the King James Bible, that's translating the Tetragrammaton, which is Hashem, the name. And we say, you know, no one really knows how to pronounce it. The Jews did not pronounce it. They would say Hashem, the name, because, or, or, or they would say Adonai, which is Lord. And so that's where we get Lord. When I was learning biblical Hebrew, we always read the Tetragrammaton Adonai when we translated mm-hmm. from Hebrew to mm-hmm. English. We read Adonai, Lord. And so anytime you see that, what you're seeing is, I don't know what you would say. You could say Yehovah, or you could say Jehovah, or you could say Yahweh. But the point is to see that this is the name of Israel's God, as distinguished from all these other gods that you mentioned are gods. And, you know, when we covered two readings, as we went through the 10 plagues, so-called, we didn't really bring this out, but each one of those was dealing with an Egyptian God, all the way up to at the very end where everyone, I think everyone's familiar with Ra, the sun God, right? When the sun itself is blotted out, that's the high God of the Egyptians is Ra, the sun God. And now even that God has been overpowered by Yahweh, by the Lord. And so that's what we're looking at here. Yeah. And then you get Osiris, God of the underworld with the death of all of the firstborn. So that's something worth looking into that we didn't really go into that you can go into on your own. So I think now we can go through the Ten Commandments of how to read the Bible, and they'll remind us, because with each one of these, I'm going to give the actual commandment as it appears in the Bible. So the first one, Ben, is thou shalt not make the Bible God, which is to say thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? So if God is the only God worthy of worship, then we can't make the Bible God. And so we have to understand that this is going to be my interpretation. This is not necessarily from the most peculiar book. If we see God portrayed in a certain way in the Bible, which is the ancient Near Eastern way of seeing God, that does not mean that that is God. We should not make the Bible God or the Bible's depictions of God, God. God was working with an ancient people where they were, meeting them where they are, and is doing the same for us. However it is that we conceive of God, You can picture God saying to you, just like he did to the ancient Israelites, okay, you know, that's not really who I am, but I'm glad that you are trying to relate to me and I want to be in a relationship with you. He's going to keep working with us and stay in a relationship with us and revealing himself. The process of God revealing who he is has happened over centuries, right? Over millennia. You have God appearing ultimately in the incarnate Christ, right? on the one hand. And on the other hand, we're still trying to figure out what that means. (laughs) So I think this is a good point, right? Thou shalt not make the Bible God. Yeah. Something you've said before, Chris, is that scripture or the word of God or, or whatever we have written, if anything, the most it would be would be the penultimate word of God. What it is, is it's trying to point us in the direction of an experience with God, but in and of itself, it's not the thing, right? Yeah, the word of God, the word made flesh, that's Jesus, right? That's the Christ. Yeah. And I say Jesus, I mean, again, the Christ is bigger than Jesus. We can see that hopefully, maybe at times in us, if we're not taking upon ourselves the name of God in vain, right? Yeah. The second commandment, 
thou shalt not worship the object itself. It may be uh, hard to distinguish this from thou shalt not make the Bible God. I tried to make a distinction in how I described the first commandment. The second commandment, thou shalt not worship the object itself. How would you understand that, Ben? So it might be understood in a similar way, but I think this is potentially something like taking the scriptures in a fundamentalist way, using like a fundamentalist literal way of interpreting them rather than, again, looking to where they're pointing. Yeah, like on the face of it, right? Something like that. This would be the face of an idol. Yeah. That would be idolizing the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So the third commandment, thou shalt not presume that any given translation is the text itself. In other words, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. This is a different interpretation of this idea, right? We've gone into this in a different way. But thinking about it in the standard way, don't take the name of the Lord in vain could be said in terms of how to read the Bible, in terms of don't think that any given translation is the text itself. And backing it up to the second commandment that we just covered, Ben, especially in your interpretation, is that even the text itself is the penultimate word on God, right? The the actual experience of God is much more accurate. So what we have is those who have written the scriptures have had an experience of God, and they have tried to put it into words, and they have put something down on paper, but that's not God. You can't put God down on paper. Yeah, Nephi gets at this, or tries to, right? <laughs> That's the whole idea. Nephi tries to get at this by saying, angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. Wherefore I said unto you, feast upon the words of Christ, for behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Now, that scripture, sometimes we take that and we say, oh, feast upon the words of Christ. That means read the scriptures more. But Nephi right. just told us that the Holy Ghost is what? speaks the words of Christ, right? And so when we read the scriptures, it's the experience we're having with God, the presence of God, which we conceptualize of as the Holy Ghost. It's the experience we're having with the presence of God. That is the words of Christ, not the scriptures themselves. Amen. The fourth commandment, mind the gaps. Now, this equates to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The idea is that the Sabbath becomes a gap in the ordinary. You have ordinary life, six days a week, then comes this gap where there's a gap between ordinary life and this set-apart time, right? And so the author mentions that there's a sign, I think it's in London in the subway, that says, mind the gap, which is to remind the subway rider that there's an actual gap between the platform and the train. And so we've got to look for those gaps, whether it's, wait, where did Cain get his wife? Is one example that the author gives. Or whatever it is that shows up in an unexpected way, we have to be willing to go into that space in a sense in faith, right? We've got to mind those gaps. We've got to watch those gaps. You know, I don't know, I I can't really speak for the author of the text itself, but one thing that occurs to me to say here is that we shouldn't necessarily try to fill in those gaps. In some sense, we have to let those gaps be. At the same time, you know, we're here doing Midrash, right? And that's what everyone (laughs) has always done because we're filling in those gaps. So the point is to be aware, whether we're filling them in or not, how about that? Just mind the gaps. Be aware that there are the gaps and that you are filling them in and you may be getting it wrong. How about that? Yeah. And I think one of the principles here, like you said, was that this is something different, right? You know, six days shalt thou labor, but the seventh day it rests. The idea is that the Sabbath is supposed to be 
set apart something different. Specifically, what you make of that is going to be very individual to the person. You know, I don't know if it was this past Sunday or the Sunday before. We have a little pond in our neighborhood that they stock with fish, and the kids like to go there and fish, and they're easy to get. And so my daughter came to me on Sunday and she's like, Hey, can we go fishing? And like, my initial reaction was, No, we don't fish on Sunday. But this is like this cultural, traditional way of do's and don'ts that I've come up with. And fishing is something that's like, No, you don't fish on Sunday, right? But the fact is that like, I don't really ever fish. And so for me, taking my daughter and going down to the pond and fishing with her actually was something different. It was set apart. It was special. I love that. And so I realized this was appropriate because it was different and special. I love that, Ben. And it made that time and that space special. And so, you know, lists of do's and don'ts don't work for the Sabbath because the idea is that President Nelson put it this way. He says that the principle here is that you want it to be a sign of your covenant with God. And whatever it is that makes it that, that's the Sabbath. Well, and let's not forget that the Bible doesn't give us a list. It gives this principle, which we have to interpret. And so, and by the way, again, we're talking about 10 commandments here, but this is just the beginning. We're going to get over 600, you know, starting with these 10 by the time we get through Gen X, Levinamdu, right? Deuteronomy. So the next commandment is the fifth one, honor the knowledge and wisdom of your predecessors. Ironically, perhaps, this does not mean do it the way the Bible says. It actually means the Bible says something, and yet we've come to an understanding of how to negotiate that, where we don't actually do that thing. It's like I've been saying, Ben, we don't actually do all the things the way the Bible says, because that's not how we do things. That's, you know, for the ancient Israelites, it looks like God is condoning slavery. So I can make a case for slavery from the Bible. That's not honoring the knowledge and wisdom of my predecessors. We've come a long way and we don't want to go backwards, <laughs> right? So I think what I'm saying is for the ancient Israelites, for God to work with them where they are, at least this is going to be their experience of God, right? They're going to say, someone who's inspired to move them closer to the truth, closer to God a prophet is going to tell them, God wants you to do it this way. He wants you to give your slaves a Sabbath, for example, so that it's not just that you don't work on Sunday, it's neither do your slaves and no one within the gates of your city, right? not even strangers. And so this is the idea. And so honoring the knowledge and wisdom of our predecessors means that we go farther. You know, we've come farther than that, and we would honor all of that. That was hard won the freedom that we've won from slavery as a people, meaning as a race, as a human race, has been a hard one, and, and we would honor that. And that was, by the way, five was obviously honor thy father and mother, it says. Six, thou shalt not use the Bible for character assassination. I love that one. That's kind of fun. <laughs> thou shalt not kill, right? The Bible is not a weapon for you to beat somebody over the head with it. And we do this, right? We do this. And it's funny, too, because some of the ways that we do it, as you were just talking about the Sabbath, I don't even know that we would say necessarily that it's in the Bible. I think we know it's not in the Bible. But whatever our idea is of what you should or shouldn't do on Sunday, we're going to use the Bible to back us up because it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But we just made up that there's something that that means, right? Whether it's don't go fishing or what have you, right? Or that there should be some sort of punishment assigned to it. 
How about that? Yeah, that's an interesting aspect of these laws. Can we call them laws, Ben? Not in a traditional legal sense, because a law, like a code of laws, has to have prohibitions or prescriptions and then the consequences, right? This doesn't present that. We don't get that. The Sixth Commandment for how to read the Bible, thou shalt not use the Bible for character assassination. Number seven, thou shalt not forsake wisdom to embrace careless interpretations. This is a version of thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Don't forsake wisdom to embrace careless interpretations. This is like going astray from your marriage relationship into folly. So what would be an example of where we might do this with the text? You know, I don't know an example from the book where I got the Ten Commandments from, and I don't have it with me, but can you think of one? <laughs> I was trying to, and I was going to throw it on you while I had time to try to think of one, but I couldn't. <laughs> I just love that ball back in your court. We yeah. can do this all night, Ben. <laughs> so see if you guys can think of one, <laughs> an example yeah. of this. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I reviewed these Ten Commandments of how to read the Bible in the book to make sure that I knew what the author meant, but it didn't occur to me that I wasn't really sure how to apply this one. So what's that commandment again? Read that one again, number seven. It's thou shalt not forsake wisdom to embrace careless interpretations. Okay. Number eight, thou shalt not take biblical texts out of context, which is thou shalt not steal. And it's interesting because everything that is said is said in a context, and the Bible has its context. And when we drop the context, and we assume that dropping the context, everything else will stay the same, this is one of the biggest mistakes that we can make in thinking, yet alone in interpreting a text. Because everything that is said is said in a context. That would be something like standing on the 50th floor of the building and saying, I'm just going to dynamite the lower 49 floors, and I'm still going to stand here on the 50th floor. Mm. Right? You're just blowing away the context, and you think you can still stand on the 50th floor. There is no 50th floor without 49 floors beneath it. That's the context. Those 49 floors are the context for the 50th floor. So we can't just drop the context and take the text out of its context. That would be a gross misinterpretation. That would lead to gross interpretation probably every time if not all the time, most of the time. Number nine, thou shalt not presume to issue divine judgment of others. This would be like thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Hmm. It's not our place to judge, and we are in no place to judge righteously. The reason that we make Christ the judge is that he lived a perfect life. We have not lived a perfect life. And because we're his, we're not ours and you're not mine, and I'm not yours, we're his. And so he's the judge, not us. The 10th commandment, this is a fun one. <laughs> Thou shalt not desire a different Bible than the one you have, no matter how exasperating it can be sometimes. Now, it's interesting because we may not get this one as Latter-day Saints, because look, whatever is exasperating about the Bible, it's explained away, either in the Joseph Smith translation <laughs> or in the chapter heading we're in a conference talk, right? <laughs> Am I right? Sure. But what then? How does this still apply? So what does it mean by don't desire a different Bible? I think this kind of goes back to some of the points that we have been making that just because we see in the text 
that God is portrayed in a certain way or people understand him in a certain way, and that doesn't match our understanding or experience with God, doesn't mean that we can completely dismiss that or say that that experience is irrelevant or unimportant to our life. Yeah. That would be desiring a different Bible than exists, right? Yeah. We have to wrestle with it. We have to say, this is how the people understood God, and there's something for me to learn from their experience. I may not know what it is, but I'm not going to dismiss it. And this kind of goes with some of the other commandments, right? None of these are siloed in and of themselves. There's interrelations here. But I can't say that there's nothing here for me just because the experience of these people doesn't necessarily match my experience. Yeah, here's another example. And this is desiring a different Bible than the one we have by taking texts out of context. So this is 10 and 8 at the same time. I told you about this, Ben. There was an interpretation of the story of Tamar that I heard about from another LDS podcast, where Tamar is not actually a prostitute. Well, okay, she's not actually a prostitute, but she's not even really thought of or seen as a prostitute. Well, yes, she is. She's trying to be seen and thought of as a prostitute, even though she's not a prostitute. And by the way, of course, this means that the patriarch, the biblical patriarch, is of course also not having sexual intercourse with a prostitute, but he is. And so this text has its own context that's different from our context, and it's desiring another Bible to try to whitewash it and to take it out of context and to try to make it something that it's not, because we don't know how to deal with it or we don't want to deal with it. Either we don't know how to deal with it, that's the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not take biblical text out of context, we're not actually learning the context, or number 10, we wish it were different. And so we just say, well, it says that, but we're going to interpret it in, in this other way so that it turns out that it's not what it says. Hmm. It's hard not to do that. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's the Ten Commandments of how to read the Bible. <laughs> good insight. That's good. Yeah, I thought so too. And something a little bit different and fun. Well, Ben, I think that brings us through the end of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, so I think next time we get into a little more of what we would call the law or Torah, right? Which the law isn't a good translation of that. I think better translation was like instruction or teaching, right? Because law sounds legalistic and much of this isn't necessarily about a legal code. There's instruction and teaching here. So anyway, next time I think we get more into that. And one of the interesting things that I remember from some of the commentary is that you can tell that a lot of this legal code becomes relevant within the context of a settled people, right? And so we see this in the Ten Commandments. You know, it says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Well, I mean, they're in the wilderness traveling around in tents. Nobody has a house, right? So you can't covet your neighbor's house. So this has been codified at least already at a point where they are settled somewhere and people have houses, right? This is evidence that the writers and the storytellers are reconstructing this past collective memory and stories as they're, they're doing this. And probably in a Canaanite context when this is actually happening. So to finish up with this week's reading, we just have that God shows up in thunder and lightning and there's the sound of a conch blowing. And the mountain is smoking, and the people are afraid, and they tremble, and they stand at a distance, and they say to Moses, how about we don't want to talk to God, we just want to talk to you. You talk yeah. to God, and then we'll talk to you. 
And Moses says, don't be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin, reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And then the last part here we get is the law concerning the altar. And I thought one of the interesting points about it is that God says that they have to use, this harks back to the Tower of Babel and to the building of the pyramids, that they cannot actually take a chisel to these rocks that they're going to build. And no hewn stones, yeah. To build the altar, they have to just use stones as they find them and build them up in this way. So no bricks, no building empires out of bricks like Babel and like Egypt, right? Yeah. This is just take the rocks and pile them up. Well, there's a few stipulations here. I mean, one is about making their gods out of silver or gold. Yeah. And this is mentioned earlier in the Ten Commandments about not making idols and stuff. But the reason it's re-mentioned here, along with some other things, is that these are things to distinguish them from the other peoples, right? Like all the other peoples, they, That's what they do. their idols, they make out of silver and gold. You can't do that because you're different. And then it says, make an altar of earth or of non-hewn stones. Why? Because it's different, right? This is about setting apart. This is the concept of the Sabbath. These people are different. And then it talks about, this I thought was a little funny, you shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Apparently, you know, the priests of other people, they went up on steps to their altar. And these people weren't to do that because it was different, right? So basically, the idea is you look at how everybody's doing things and you do it completely the opposite. Now, of course, the Israelites, you know, the people that are with Moses, that he's telling the commandment that says that they should have no idols and that we get here that they shouldn't make idols out of gold and silver are not going to do any such thing because that's, wait a minute, that's not how the story goes, is it? So again, where we're going next with this story is they're going to make an idol out of gold, and we're going to keep going through the Pentateuch, keep going through the Torah, through the law, and Moses is going to tell them, do this, don't do that, and they're going to not do that and do this. Yes. And that's how the story goes. Right. Thank you to our editors, Kyle Swingle and Tom Bogle. Thank you to Shiloh Logan and... Lindsay Olin as co-founders of Latter-day Peace Studies for producing this podcast. And thank you, Ben. Thanks, Christopher. So until next time, <laughs> I'm Christopher Hurtado. I'm Ben Peterson. Have a great week.